Uh, so the reading this morning is from Philippians 1. We've obviously just read one of those verses as well, so if we come to that point, do join in with me when we get there. So Philippians 1, which is uh, in the Bible, Church Bible, on page 1178, 1178. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have put you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Shall we, uh, let's pray before we uh, have a look at that passage. Heavenly Father, we just thank you once again for the opportunity for you to speak to us, uh, for you to guide us, for you to shape us. Father, I just pray that we would open our hearts to your word, uh, that we may bury it deep inside, that we may live by it, that we may um, bear fruit from it. So speak to us now, we pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Right, I have a question for you this morning. How is your joy? How is your joy right now, today? If I were to get you to give it a score, for instance, from, say, naught, joyless, to seven, there's a good biblical number, seven of perfect joy, what score would you give yourself this morning? Have a few seconds to think about that. Give yourself that score. And with that number in mind, what is your score based on? What is your score based on? Is it your circumstances? Is it your walk with God? Is it other people? Are they filling you with joy? Or do people perhaps make you unhappy? Is it church? Is church giving you a high or a low score? Is it life? Is it money? Finances? Is it your health? Is it your struggles? What is your score based on? What is your score based on? Well, God can help us with that question through the life and the letters of Paul the Apostle. Uh, this letter to the Philippian church is the perfect place to learn about joy because the Apostle Paul, despite his earthly struggles, despite church issues, despite his circumstances, can show us how to have overflowing joy. This is the letter of joy. It's known as the epistle of joy. So let's read again verse 
well, the first six verses. Let's just go back and read the first six verses again. And I'm going to add one extra little word to the memory verse. So when you do get hold of that memory verse, and I'm, I think it might have been a mistake, I'm going to have a word with Nathan. I'm going to add one extra little word to the end of verse 6b. But let's read the first six verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all of my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's that extra bit. And this morning, in this series, In My Heart, Off by Heart, we're going to focus on verse 6. Verse 6. There we go. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus is the extra bit that I'm adding. Philippians verse uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6b. Now, we're not going to just memorize that verse. The whole purpose of the morning series, In My Heart, Off By Heart, is for us to bury that verse deep in our hearts, for us to understand the verse, pray about the verse, meditate on that verse, and ultimately to live by that verse. Because Paul shows us that by focusing on verse 6, we can have great joy. And hopefully, whatever number you gave yourself, by focusing on that verse, it just might increase. So I don't have three catchy points. I don't want us to remember three catchy points. I'm just going to break it down into those three uh, lines. He who began a good work in you is the first one. Then we'll look at, we'll carry it on to completion and then finally, we'll look at until the day of Christ Jesus. So let's look at the first line. He who began a good work in you. Well, the context of this letter, Paul is reminding himself about how God began a work in the Philippian church. And it's really helpful, I think, right from the very beginning to look at the context of this passage and what God is teaching us. The you that Paul is talking about, the he who began a good work in you, is both, of course, the individuals, and, of course, it's also the church. If you were to just memorize this verse in isolation, you would probably just think of you, the individual. God begins a good work in you. But Paul wrote to the church, to the Philippian church. And so he who began a good work in you can also mean you lot, you the church. And I guess if Paul was writing to us here at Wem Baptist Church, the same would apply. God begins a good work in you, Wem Baptist Church. And I think it's good that we apply that later on, hopefully, to increase our joy, both as you as individuals will look at it, and us as a church. He who began a good work in you. So the question is, who is the he 
and what is the work? Well, Paul, in this letter, as he writes, he's remembering all of them in Philippi. And he's even casting his mind back 10 years. 10 years when it all first began. Let's read again from verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you, he says. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And that first day he's thinking about is 10 years back. We read in the book of Acts, chapter 16, it's around 50 AD. Paul and Silas and some others sail across the Aegean Sea from Asia across to Greece and they travel to Philippi. And they're in Europe for the very first time. And let me read the account from Acts. Luke says this, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. Now the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And Lydia was the first European Christian, along with later then her household. And Paul preached the gospel to her. But the question is, who saved her? Who is it? that saved her. And verse 14 says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Paul preached and God did the work of saving her. And then God did the work of saving her household. And later on in the book of Acts, another well-known event takes place in Philippi, doesn't it? Paul and Silas find themselves in prison um, they've cast out a spirit out of a lady who told fortunes. Um, her bosses were really angry because they couldn't earn any money from her. And Paul and Silas were attacked, arrested. The magistrates ordered them to be beaten further with rods, and then they were thrown in prison. I think you know the rest of that story and what God did for the Philippian jailer. God saved him through an earthquake and by hearing the gospel. God saved the jailer, and then God saved the jailer's household as well. And those new Christians began the church in Philippi. God began a work in the individuals, but he also began a work in the church at Philippi. And so the good work we're talking about is salvation. It's salvation. It's the best work. And who does the work? God does the work. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says this, Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. God causes new birth. And in Acts 11, a very important statement is made in verse 18. And when they heard this, that's the report of Gentile conversions, the people quieted down and they glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says this, we should always give thanks to God for you, always, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. And it was for this he called you through the gospel. God chooses, God calls, God gives you repentance, God gives you faith, God saves you. It's all his work. I mean, no wonder Paul says, being confident in this, he starts verse 6, being confident in this, he who began a good work in you. And that should give us great joy, I think, this morning, because praise the Lord, it's not down to you. Can you imagine just for a minute if it was? Just think about that for a second. If salvation was up to you. And also, what comfort should that bring to those who perhaps preach the gospel or share their testimonies? or help in children's work, or coffee morning, or mission work, or in fact, any ministry within church. It isn't down to you. It's not the words that we use, it's not the eloquence of the speaker, it's not even our timing. It's all God's salvation work. And it's a song we sing as well. Maybe you haven't sort of, we haven't sung it for a while, but a song by Matt Redman. Verse 1, he, he says this, Who, O Lord, could save themselves? Their own sin could heal. I mean, that is a great question, Matt. And the answer, of course, it's a rhetorical question. No man or woman could save themselves. How could they? How could sinners heal themselves? And then he goes and answers it, in the chorus, you alone can rescue, you alone can save, you alone can lift us from the grave. You came down to find us, led us out of death, to you alone belongs the highest praise. God begins the good work of salvation in you. That's the first point to make. That's the first line of the verse. And remember that he began the good work in you as an individual, Christian, and he began a good work in the church. He gave birth to Wem Baptist Church. The church began because God did a work in some people in Wem. He saved them together as a body of believers, just like Philippi. So remember both of those truths as we move on to the second point. We'll carry it on to completion. We'll carry it on to completion. If we go back into the passage in Philippians, the point Paul is making in verse 6 is this. He says, I am confident, I am assured, I am absolutely persuaded and convinced of this very thing 
that God who started that good work in you will perfect it. He will perfect it. Paul doesn't say, do you know what? I hope this works out for you. He doesn't say, do you know what? It's touch and go. It's a bit of a lottery. No. He says, I am confident of this. I am fully persuaded of this one thing. That God who saves you, who begins that noble work of sanctifying you, will, he will complete it, Christian. And it's a great statement. He will bring it to full completion. God will complete the work in you. And because he does it, because he does it, he does it perfectly. He does it perfectly. So imagine again what would happen if it was down to us. What would happen if it was actually down to us? And I've got three representatives of some projects that humans have undertaken just, I hope, to prove the point. What if you asked, perhaps, you wanted a new fireplace or a log burner? It's, you know, they're all the rage. What if you wanted a new log burner? And so you've got some skilled craftsmen to come in and, and fit that for you. Would it look like this, do you think? There's the chimney. So there's the chimney to a new fireplace that's just been put in. It looks like it might not have been in the UK, um, but, thank goodness, but, but there's the chimney. So is that a demonstration of perfection, would you say? Probably not. So let's, let's, let's move up a scale, shall we? Let's look at somebody who is truly, truly skilled. Leonardo da Vinci. Let's have a look at a painting of his. This is known as the Adoration of the Magi. This is the Adoration of the Magi. Now, this was commissioned by some Augustinian monks back in 1482. They, they asked Leonardo if he would do this, and he said, yes, of course I will, but perfection, he said, these were his, his words, it's written down, perfection takes time. And he set himself 30 months to produce this painting. And I don't know if you can tell from the projection, but it is completely unfinished. This is one of his unfinished works, The Adoration of the Magi. If you look at it online, you can see parts of the canvas where there's still the drawings and no paint. And there's also a testimony about it to say that he was, believe it or not, known as the talented slacker. And it's not because he was lazy. It's not because he was lazy. It was because he had so many things going on. It wasn't just painting that he was good at. Science, experiments, all sorts of things. And of course, he got sidetracked and he moved on and he never finished the adoration of the Magi. So, another skilled craftsman with an unfinished work. Lastly then, let's have a look at this one. Does anybody, rec <laughs> Does anybody recognize this momentous project? I hope there's, there's nobody in the congregation that's actually involved in HS2, is there? I hope not. Well, no. So this is HS2. This is the high-speed two rail network. 
This one was uh, first uh, projected in 2010. It came up um, to uh, Parliament in 2010. And it took about two years for Parliament to finally agree to go ahead with this project in 2012. At a cost estimated at 30 billion pounds. 30 billion pounds for this in 2012. Well, if you look at the Wikipedia page, it's enormous and not for all the good reasons because there is so much to say about this project which is still ongoing. There's been so many problems with it from right from the beginning with protesters to Forestry Commission complaining about us digging up major important forests to then of course coming across ancient burial grounds to more protesters to concerns that there are not enough women on the project as well to more protests to parliamentary issues to reviews and so forth. The right-hand leg up to Leeds has been scrapped, apparently. The Welsh have complained because it doesn't connect up Wales, and the problems go on and on. In 2019, uh, the project cost was then estimated at a new £80 million. And finally, in 2023, there's been a final review, or another review, I doubt it's a final review, because it's going to go on till 2032, I think, is that the cost is estimated at £98 billion. Did I say £80 million? £80 billion. So £98 billion now of the taxpayers' money will go into this project. And I think, according to Wikipedia, that cost is just going up and up and up. And the review, latest review said that it was unachievable. Unachievable. But I think we're still pressing forwards with HS2. So that's a project that our whole country and parliament and everything is involved in. I know it's an independent organization running it now, but even we can't get that right. Just a couple of examples of perhaps man's attempt at perfecting a project. Back to the passage will carry it on to completion. You see, if you, you go into God's great workshop, we'll find a perfect plan for you with unlimited strength and resources. Nothing in heaven on earth can alter it. The price, well, the price has been paid. Christ's death on the cross was the price, and it is fully paid. It doesn't go up. It's not going to get infect, um, affected by inflation. There's no cost of salvation crisis with this one. Christ's death was the cost, and God's promise is all you need to be assured. The work is perfectly planned, perfectly started, perfectly finished. It has a perfect budget, and the work is always on time. So just meditate on that great truth for a minute, both for you and for the church. Because Paul says, my joy is founded on the great anticipation of what will become. Because he will carry it on to completion. He will carry it on to completion. Now you may not feel right now, today, that you're being perfected. You may not feel like the church, perhaps, 
is being perfected. When you look sometimes at the here and now, you can often lose sight of this truth, this big picture. But God promises you that he will and he is perfecting you and the church. He will carry his work on to completion. And this term is really known as the preservation or the perseverance of the saints. It's what we call eternal security. We sang about it. He will hold us fast. Romans 5 talks about it. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? If, while we were enemies of God, you can be saved by God through Christ's death, how much more, once we are saved, can you be kept and perfected by God through Christ's life? Again, what joy that should bring us, because praise the Lord, it isn't down to us. He will carry it on to completion. Until the day of Christ Jesus. Until the day of Christ Jesus. I've put Jesus on the end because that is actually in the passage or in the, the, uh, the, the um, transcript that even Nathan, I think, pointed us to in the NIV. And until the day of Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? What does it mean until the day of Christ Jesus? Well, if you know your Old Testament, then you'll know the phrase, the day of the Lord. But, well, the day of the Lord, it's in the Old Testament around 19 and 20 times in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. And it always, always refers to divine judgment, to divine judgment on sinners. It always refers to the outpouring of wrath. The ultimate expression of the day of the Lord will be at the return of Jesus Christ when God pours out his wrath on all the ungodly of all the ages. There's one other, or there's a number of other times when it's the, the day of the Lord is mentioned, and a day of the Lord in which God can move in any severe judgment in the Old Testament. And the final day of the Lord is when he comes to judge the ungodly at the second coming of Christ. But this is until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's different. You see, because in this verse, the day of Christ Jesus refers to some time when believers will be glorified. This is a joyful verse. He's going to perfect you in the day of Christ Jesus. It speaks of a day when believers will become perfect, when salvation will become complete in you and the church. If we read further on in verse 10 of this passage, at the end of the verse, he says that believers are going to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And again, it's talking about believers. In verse 6, it was the day of Christ Jesus. In verse 10, it's the day of Christ. And both refer to when believers will be presented to God, blameless. In chapter 2, of this letter. Paul says this, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, We are awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now we have the day of Christ Jesus, or the day of Christ, twice in Philippians, and we also now have the day of the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians. He uses it again in 2 Corinthians. And here's what we have. The day of Christ, the day of Christ Jesus, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, the day of our Lord Jesus, and the day of the Lord Jesus, all in a few letters in the New Testament from Paul. And every single one of those times he refers to the glorification of the saints, a time of great joy. So here's the difference. Whenever you see the day of the Lord, you know you're talking about judgment on sinners. Whenever you see the day of Christ, or the day of Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, you're talking about the glorification of the saints. And the Lord makes a distinguishing characteristic clear by introducing the personal name of Jesus Christ. Really celebrating intimacy with the unique relationship we have with God through Christ. So with that in mind, let's go back to Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to carry you right on to the time when we meet Jesus. Christ receives the perfect you. That's the final point, really. This is the final line. You will meet him and be blameless in his sight. You will dwell with him forever with great joy and in glory. He who began a great he began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So, let's just sum up very quickly then what we've learned this morning. Paul is writing this letter from Rome. He's awaiting news of possibly his um, execution. He's under house arrest. Uh, things aren't looking particularly great in earthly terms. He could moan or complain about his circumstances in earthly terms, I guess he has little to be happy about. But as he writes this letter, 10 years after his first trip to Philippi, he says this, I think of you all. I think of the Philippian church, all of you, and you all bring me so much joy, every single one of you. From the very first day until now, he says, I pray for you with such joy. Now, Paul isn't daft. He knows they're not perfect. Um, he knows the people in the church are not perfect. I mean, he writes later on in the letter to urge them to be of one mind. Obviously, there's some disagreement in the Philippian church. He touches on the fact that there may be some grumblings in the letter to the church. He even calls out to ladies. He says, I plead with you, Euodia. I plead with you, Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. So he knows they're not perfect. He knows they need work. But yet, he says, you bring me so much joy. He says, my joy is founded on the truth that no matter what's going on in the lives of the church, 
no matter what's going on with them, he knows that God, who began a good work in them, will complete it. So Paul really has the joy of anticipation. The joy of anticipation. It's like the words of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. So, how do we apply that verse to our lives now? If you focus on what's wrong with your life right now, if you focus on what's wrong with the church, perhaps, right now, you can easily get down. You can easily become frustrated. You can say, oh, my life isn't what it ought to be. And our church isn't what it ought to be. Maybe that's how you're feeling right now. Or maybe how you have been feeling. But, like Paul, if you focus on what you are going to become or what the church is going to become, well, then everything changes. Frustration changes to overflowing infectious joy and you can make that choice like Paul you can either moan groan mumble about what isn't the way it ought to be or you can just look at what is going to happen what God promises he will do and there's so much to get excited about in the truth of verse 6 and for leaders as well for all those in some form of ministry, to fully understand this verse is so freeing, again, because nobody is going to get lost. Nobody's going to get lost. The Lord is never going to say to a preacher or a leader or anybody in ministry, do you realize that because of your unfaithfulness, hundreds of people didn't get to heaven? He will never say that. He will, you'll never hear God say, do you realize a lot of those folks in Wim Baptist Church started out good, and you lost them? That would get you seriously messed up if you thought that. If you thought you had that responsibility. You can get distressed, but if we thought about, oh, things are not as they ought to be, well then, of course, we all know that. We know things aren't what they ought to be. Scripture clearly tells us that we're not what we ought to be. And so if you think about it, a whole lot of people who aren't what they ought to be make up a church that isn't what it ought to be. And then you add some leaders onto that who aren't what they ought to be, and of course you wonder why the church is sometimes the way it is. But you certainly can rejoice in what it's going to be in what it's going to be. And Paul has this sense of joy, this overwhelming, triumphant joy that says, in the end, the church is going to be exactly what God wants it to be. The life of Paul the Apostle and the truth of this verse teaches us that there is no sense in spending your whole life in a state of frustration over what the church is not. When you could spend your whole life in a state of joy like Paul over what the church will become. That's the joy of anticipation. Meditate on the truth of verse 6. Pray about the truth of verse 6. Maybe even repent a little based on the truth of verse 6. And see if your score goes up 
in the days and the, the weeks and maybe the months ahead. See if your joy increases based on the steadfast, unchanging truth of verse 6. Let's read it again together for one last time. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, verse 6b. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for the truth that you reveal to us. Father, we pray that we would take that verse, we would take all of that passage, all of what Paul is saying to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would bury it deep into our hearts so that we may live by that truth. Father, in the weeks and the days and the months ahead, that you would continue to remind us of that truth, that we may overflow with joy. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.